If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter 12. We'll soon be reading in verse 22 from that great chapter. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Matthew chapter 12 on page 767 of that Bible. Stuck in a trench during World War I, a German lieutenant by the name of Karl Schwarzschild got a somewhat unexpected and rather fat package delivered to him. It was a long and detailed report that had absolutely nothing to do with the war that was waging around him. But it was written by a former colleague of his in hope that he might find it interesting and that he might be able to provide some illumination on it. It was one of the first copies of Einstein's general theory of gravity, one of the most groundbreaking and interesting science proposals that's ever been put to paper. And as he read it over, while in a trench, by flashlight at night, he decided to set himself to solving some of the equations that Einstein had given that had remained up to that point unsolved. And as he started to work through the math with World War I raging around him, doing things that Einstein apparently hadn't done, he actually found solutions for them. The solutions were incredibly unexpected because they proposed something that not only had science not thought of before, but no one up to that point in human history had ever even conceived of. He wouldn't come up with the usual name for the entity. It would be almost 50 years before that name was proposed. Frankly, he didn't get to work on it very much further because he would die less than a year later of an infection that he received while sitting in that trench. But we know of his solution today as black holes. Black holes are fascinating. They're stuff of nightmares, even though they're interesting as all get out. They are unstoppable eating forces that seemingly take in and never give back out. On their cusp, they can stretch out time infinitely. They can squeeze matter infinitesimally and destroy without themselves ever being destroyed. And they seem, frankly, irrational. They, they don't fit into the normal schemes of science. It's an, an infinitesimal point that has incredible mass and matter delved into it, a, a density that goes up to infinity. It doesn't make any sense. They are, as we hope to show, the perfect picture of our sin. Our sin's illogical. It's destructive. It stretches us to the breaking point. It will reduce us to nothing, and it will do so for eternity. And we have a hard time seeing it. We circle its inevitability always, never able to overcome its gravity, simply awaiting the day our fate becomes reality. If not for Jesus, who has, of course, rescued us from this nightmare. He and he alone was powerful enough to go into the very heart of our sin to drag us out of that inevitable end and from our own death and destruction. He removes it from us or it, either it from us or us from it. He forgives us. He enlivens us. He awakens us. He rejoices that we are set free from it. Yet we realize that not all sin is created equal. Some sins have a sticking power. One in particular is so massive and strong that those who commit it pass the event horizon and into a darkness from which there is no escape. Not because Jesus doesn't have the power to do so, 
or rather we would understand because he simply refuses to do so. Today we speak of the unpardonable sin. And although that is where we will end up, we have much to go through before we get there. So let us read these 12 verses from Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 33, and hear what the Spirit says to us today. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 22. There, the word of our God says this. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is the word of our God. This passage is quite clearly about how the kingdom of God wars against and defeats the kingdom of this world. The Pharisees have quite obviously at this time aligned themselves against Jesus, squarely against Jesus, and therefore against the kingdom of God, although they are honestly quite blind to the fact that they have done so. They, I think everyone coming to this would agree, believe that they are fighting for the kingdom of God, yet we know that they are not. How can we avoid that fate? How can we not be duped into thinking that we are striving for the kingdom of God when really we are falling prey to the kingdom of the world? Let us, in turning to the word, find a couple of things from it that might help us in that. First, let us discern our desire, or as it says in your bulletin, discern your desire. Discern your desire. The question that's posed by the people after this fateful casting out of a demon, which is a a threefold miracle. Not only does he cast out the demon, but he was blind and mute, and now he sees and speaks, and he's demon-free. They look and they say, could this be the son of David? It's a question that doesn't expect a positive response. It actually expects a negative response. But not because they don't actually believe that he is the son of David, but because him being the waited for son of David is just such good news that it can't possibly be true. Is is it really true? Could this really be the case? There's no way that this is actually the son of David, right? Makes perfectly good sense. This is the man 
that they have been waiting for, that their parents were waiting for, their parents before them were waiting for, for centuries they have been waiting for this king to come and to deliver them. Can this be him? Are we in the time where we get to see the Messiah? With that sort of messianic fever around this area reaching its peak, the Pharisees need to put a stop to it. But you might ask, why go this particular route? Why use this particular line, which seems, frankly, so far-fetched? There's got to be a more rational way to go about this. But the Pharisees face a real problem. And frankly, we ought to see that this is a logical way from their viewpoint of dealing with it. The first part of the problem is that Jesus' works are obviously both good and real. No one is denying, not even the Pharisees, that the works that Jesus is doing are good. They, they have no objections to demons being cast out. They have no objections to blind people seeing, to deaf people hearing, to mute people speaking, to withered hands being restored. They don't have a problem with any of that. And they would objectively see such things as good. They can read the Old Testament just like everybody else. They know that such things should be taken care of. They know that there is coming a day when God will reign over all people, and that will not be the case. There will be no blind and there will be no lame. They know this manifestedly good. The problem that they had was the flagrant disregard of the Sabbath, but they agree the works are good. And what's more, they can't claim that these miracles are false. They've seen them. It stands right there. They've watched demons come out of people. They have heard mute people speak. They've seen withered hands unfold before them. There are too many to deny. They are real, they are true, and they are good. But the Pharisees' other problem is this. In their minds, Jesus is quite clearly and obviously evil. He is in their minds, the anti-Messiah. Remember that it was the people's negligence of the law, the king's negligence of the law, the priest's negligence of the law that led to them getting expelled in the first place from the land. The reason why the Greeks and the Medes and the Persians and the Romans have ruled over them for centuries is because they let go of the law because they didn't follow the law, because they didn't trust in the law, because especially the Sabbath got thrown to the wolves. And here is a man who seeks, it seems, to do the very same thing, who in arrogance claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath, who is teaching people. Not only does he act in such a way, but he also teaches people to neglect the Sabbath. The Messiah is here to unite the people of God. How can this man be the Messiah uniting the people of God when he is doing the very thing that scattered them in the first place? Jesus teaches and leads the people against the law. He must do so against the very will of God. If he does it against the will of God, he must be sinful, he must be evil, and he must be opposed. So how is it that an evil man can do good things? Well, It must be by that very evil power. This way he can be followed. He can be thought well of. Even while he leads the people right to the very edge of destruction, it must be Beelzebub, the king of the demons, by which he casts out demons. The logic, frankly, is sensible. It's rational. It's right as far as their presumptions go. But we also know that it's rancid, it's wretched, and it's poor. And here's the rub. We are not, first and foremost, rational creatures. 
We don't sit down and think through logically everything that's going on. Neither do the Pharisees. The problem with the Pharisees is not their logic. The problem with the Pharisees is their heart. We don't desire what is rational. We desire and we justify our desires. We use rational thought to back up the things that we want to do. Eve was not led astray by the logic of Satan. She was led astray by her heart. But then she rationalized that desire. Genesis 3.6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She legitimized it. She said it's good for food. It's good to be wise. It's good to, to look at. It's pretty. What harm can beautiful things bring to us? And we still do this. We use logic to justify the things that we want. We rarely use it to determine what we ought to desire. The problem is not first and foremost their logic, but their hard and blackened hearts. And so it is with us. That's why we need to discern our desires. Why you want something is a far more important question to ask yourself than how can I justify what I want. Too often, we are content with saying, I want this. Let me justify why it is that I want this. Let me justify why it is that I should have this. Let me justify why it is that I should do this thing or buy this thing or go to this place. The better question is, why do you want it? It is very easy for your heart to mislead you. It is deceitful to you. And where the heart goes, the mind will follow. Jeremiah 17 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. The Pharisees saw no problem with this logic because it affirmed their desires and gave them safety in their sin. Watch your heart. Watch your desires because they will easily lead you into a trap and you'll justify your sin Discern first your desire and then worry about logic and justification and reason. Because in doing so, we'll make sure that we are on the right side. We'll find out quickly if we act for the glory of Jesus Christ or for the glory of this world. We'll find out quickly if we are, if we are trusting in the kingdom of God or if we are being fooled and duped by Satan in our flesh. Discern your desires. You might not go all the way toward answering that question, but certainly you will be closer to it than you would be at first. Secondly, leverage good logic. Leverage good logic. Simply because we are, I think, passionate creatures doesn't mean that we shouldn't use logic. It doesn't mean that we are just creatures of feeling and only follow our hearts. Logic is important and it should be used. It might be secondary, but it's clarifying and illuminating. Again, what the Pharisees are saying here makes some sense. It doesn't do to come to this and say the Pharisees are just abject morons. They're, they're not that. Stores actually do this kind of thing all the time. Not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but they do take a loss in order to get bigger victories, which is essentially what the Pharisees think is going on here. This is called a loss leader in economics. And basically, what you do is you advertise a product that you know people will want, and you advertise it for such a price that they will inevitably come to your store to buy it, in the hopes that when they come to your store, even if you're going to take a loss on that product, most people are not going to come into your store just to buy that one product. They will come in and remember all the other things that they need. And in buying those things, 
you will eventually turn a profit, and more of a profit than you would otherwise because of the larger number of people who are coming into your store. So you take a loss on one thing so that you can win on other things. And clearly that's what the Pharisees think is going on. You drive out a couple of demons, it's fine, but the bigger picture is you're trying to lead everybody astray. Well, Jesus attacks this with his own better logic. He says it's not really like that lost leader thing at all. I mean, at the very least, if you, if you treat it like that, you're at least getting people to come into your store. But this is, this is more like Walmart giving you coupons and gift cards to go shop at Meijer, right? That doesn't work. It's more like Walmart saying, we're not just going to have a loss leader. We're going to take a loss on everything in the store, and we're going to win by volume. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't work. Houses and states and cities and nations that, that so undercut themselves cannot stand. They will eat themselves in the end. I think one of the points that Jesus is making is this is not a small-time operation, man. I haven't just cast out one or two demons. I have everybody who's been brought to me has been cast out. Every single person who has brought a demon to me, I've thrust him out. Who's left? There's no demons left. If I keep doing this, what's going to happen? The kingdom of Satan will fall. If that is the tactic that Satan wants to use, why in the world would you stand up and fight it? If your enemy wants to continually shoot himself in the foot, you don't tell him to stop. It's ending up as a win either way. Either Jesus is for God or he is acting against the interests of Satan. Either way, take your W. Jesus' second point is that your folks do this very thing as well. When he says your sons, he just means people who are aligned with you. They cast out demons as well. So tell me, you know that casting out demons is good. What are they doing that's different than me? How can you tell the difference between somebody who's casting out demons by the Holy Spirit and somebody who's casting out demons by Beelzebub? How are you deciphering between the two? They have no way of doing it. He's saying if this logic that you use is truly accepted, you got to throw them under the bus as well. And at the end of the day, they know who they are and they will stand up and condemn you. Same sort of language that Jesus uses for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom standing up at the end of time to judge Capernaum and Bethsaida because they didn't respond to the miracles of Jesus. They, they didn't get the chance. He's saying they will stand up and they will judge you because you are condemning them as well. Just because our, our hearts need to be right first, friends, doesn't mean that our heads are not to follow. We are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and minds and soul and strength. Intellectual work is good and right in God's kingdom, and we shouldn't neglect it. You might not have the intellectual capability of your neighbor. You might not be the smartest person on the block. But God has given you a mind and you are to use it with all of your power and strength and might to know him and to love him, to be equipped in all ways. It isn't more spiritual to ignore the intellectual side of our faith. Jesus here uses logic to silence his critics, to clear his name, and to set free the truth. As much as we are able as much as God has given us to do this, we ought to do the same. First Peter 3.15 famously says, In your hearts, honor Christ as holy. Notice how both of these play off here. In your hearts, your desires, honor Christ as holy. 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So you love the Lord your God and you use your brain to answer any objections that might come your way. This is part of the way we make clear the foolishness of the world and the foolishness of the power of Satan. This is a way that we show that we have hope. It's why we can eventually suffer for what is good. It's why we can deny our own sin. It's why we follow Christ, not because we have simple, dumb faith, but rather because it's the only thing that actually in the end of the day makes any sense at all. Third, plunder with power. Plunder with power. Behind all of this stands this sort of concept that there are two spiritual realities or or categories of beings below God that are not corporeal, that aren't physical. Now, there might be a smaller definition once we get to heaven and we'll see that there are different levels of angels or whatever, but they basically fall into two categories of spiritual beings. You've got spiritual beings who are loyal to God and spiritual beings who are loyal to Satan. And Jesus must be using some sort of spiritual power. You can't cast out demons with physical means. While it might be fun to watch Jesus thunder punch a demon, nevertheless, we don't get to see that, right? There is no WWE of the spiritual realm that we know of, and so we have to rely on the fact that Jesus must be using a spiritual power here. And if he can't use Beelzebub to do it, if he can't use Satan to do it, then he must be using the Holy Spirit to do it. What does that mean but that the kingdom is present here among them powerfully before those Pharisees? It's clear that Jesus at least sees the Pharisees as not caring about the kingdom or at least not caring about it above their own place in it. And he challenges them. You think that yours is the kingdom. But how can you plunder the kingdom of Satan? How can you plunder the strong man if you can't bind him? In other words, where are your exorcisms? Where, where are you in the power of God casting out these demons? Have you been doing it? You've been binding the strong man? I've been doing a lot of binding. Let's be very clear. Even those of us in the church have no power on our own to bind him. Do not underestimate the power and the strength of the devil. Sometimes Christians are really flippant with that. They ought not be. There is a reason why Jesus calls him a strong man here. The Israelites continually warred and lost to worldly powers when fighting in their own strength. What chance could they possibly have against Satan? What what use were their souls and their spiritual powers against him? But Jesus is showing here that he can and indeed does bind Satan, who is the strong man. He does this through his exorcisms. And so in doing, he plunders his possessions. The possessions of Satan are nothing more than the people that he possesses. This is why we say he's possessed them. He has them. But Jesus takes them from him. We do the same. Every time someone responds to the gospel, Every time their eyes are open and they see the truth of God, they see the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, Satan loses. They are no longer his, but they belong to Christ. Jesus is the stronger man, and he is binding that strong man and then plunders his possessions. Now, if, 
if you have some sort of biblical acumen, you're probably thinking of something like Revelation 12, where it talks about Satan being dropped to the earth and him having nothing but fiery passion to destroy the church and to destroy the people of God. Certainly, he is not bound. So yeah, he's in some ways bound and in some ways he's not. He can terrorize and he can antagonize and he might rouse the nations against the gospel, but he cannot keep them blind anymore. God's people can no longer be blinded to the truth and the glory of God himself. He's been revealed in Jesus Christ, who has come in the power of the Spirit to open the eyes of the blind, that they might see him, to open the ears of the deaf, that they might hear him, to open the throats of the mute, that they might sing his praises. Satan has no hold on them anymore. This is what we do when we proclaim the gospel. We plunder the stronghold of Satan. We take his possessions and we set them free by the truth. In the end, we have to return to this issue of whose side we're on. Are we on Jesus' side or are we on Satan's side? If we do not long in our hearts for Jesus and have our desires set upon him, if we don't work to understand and to love him with our minds, if we don't set our abilities to evangelism and plundering, whose side are we really on? If you ask yourself those questions honestly, it doesn't turn out well for you. There's good news in what follows. While we all fail, if you answered those and you thought, yeah, I do all those things, I'll go back, rework the problem. The answer is no, you don't. There's good news, though. Jesus will forgive us. He will be kind to us. And although he warns us, there is also great comfort in this. So we come to our fourth and final point this morning. We are to war with warnings. We are to war with warnings. Before we move on to this very difficult passage of Scripture, let us relish the good news that is proclaimed here. He says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. He doesn't mean every single one. He doesn't mean that everyone who's ever said anything is going to be forgiven for it. But he means every kind of sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. There, there's no sin and blasphemy that Jesus is not willing and able to forgive. There are people who love wrongly, who think wrongly, who act wrongly. People who speak wretched and horrible things about God and Jesus Christ. People who breathe out murderous threats against the church. People who will fight against the kingdom of God with all of their might. And Jesus is saying, they can do that and I will still be willing to forgive them. Although blinded to their evil and deformed in their souls and thoughts, the Lord stands ready to remake them and to forgive them because he himself is their sacrifice. Because he himself has died the death that they were due. That he himself has triumphed over the grave for them. There is no more condemnation. How incredibly gracious is Jesus Christ. Those who besmirch his good name, who speak evil of him, all of those who act in sinful ways, denying his commands, he is faithful and loving to forgive. How much blasphemy, lying, 
distortions, how, how much tortured logic, how much effort is expended against him and his kingdom, and yet he stands here saying, I will forgive it all. We often run so quickly toward the next clause, but this one should frankly floor us, that no one is so powerful in their sin, no one is so attached and so blind that he cannot change them and redeem them if he chooses. His mercy, as we sing, is more. Yet, we come then face to face with this unpardonable sin. Before we even begin to talk about what it is, we have to mention that the old adage that you probably have heard before is true. That if you feel, if you are concerned, if you are worried, that you might have come under this unforgivable sin. Brothers and sisters, that's like the chief indication that you haven't. The impardonable sin is not a sin that impinges your conscience. The impardonable sin is a sin that frees your conscience to continue to do whatever it is you want to do. It shows somebody that is so far gone that they have no worries or concerns before God anymore, even though they ought to. So if you have worries or concerns, this is not the sin that you've had. Repent and believe. What should we say about it then? First, we know that this is not just for generally people who war against the kingdom of the Lord. We know it's not for people who don't know the kingdom of God or for people who have thought that the kingdom of God was a stupid idea to begin with. Right? The, the, the proclamation of Jesus' forgiveness is going to go out to all kinds of people. It's going to go out to Greeks and Romans who thought the Jewish stuff was absolute absurdity. And probably after they heard the gospel too, they thought this is ridiculous. Paul himself is a wonderful example of this. He hears the word of the Lord. He hears the gospel. And what does he do? He clenches his teeth, aids the murder of a saint, continually strikes out against the church, seeking to imprison them all. And yet the Lord forgives him. It isn't just people who have anger. It isn't just people who speak out against the church. So let's look very closely at what Jesus is doing in the context that he speaks here. He has argued, I think, that the only way to make sense of what he is doing is to accept that it's from the Holy Spirit. So he, he's very clear. It's not by Beelzebub. It's not by Satan. It's by the Holy Spirit. It must be, therefore, something that the Spirit itself is involved with and actively doing through him. It's not this sort of mere human power. It's not human beings calling other human beings and their actions evil or good. Right? We, we know that there are people out there who do this kind of thing. They, we think of a number of differences. Typical in our society, we can think of things like abortion, where people who are pro-choice might look at people who are pro-life and they would say, what you're really trying to do is just keep health care from women and that's evil. And we can say, well, I think abortion's evil, so... Are you calling evil good and good evil? And we would say, yes, that's true. Is that the unpardonable sin? No. Because it has to be something that you know and understand that the Holy Spirit is involved in. Jesus is making that case pretty strongly here. And secondly, you have to see it as something that is unequivocally good. It's good. The actions that are being taken here, the Pharisees would say, are good. So I think the warning sounds something like this. If you persist in calling what you know to be the good work of the Spirit evil, 
If you know that it is both a good work and you know that it is the Spirit of God that is doing it, and because you hate the person that it's going through, because you hate the results of it, because you hate whatever it is that you hate about it, that you will call it evil. You have so aligned yourself, even if you've done so blindly to Satan, that God will not forgive you. And I think that both of those things are important and need to be present from the given context. The act must be seen both as good and from the Spirit and yet called evil. All of this, by the way, that the Pharisees are doing is far from blindness. They, they know exactly what they're saying. They know exactly what they're doing. Does this happen today? I don't know. Perhaps it does. But I think that the point is meant to be that we should see how far gone some of these Pharisees are. They are being sucked into that black hole and there is no escape. It is destruction in the final order to see something that is unequivocally good and to see it be done unequivocally by the Spirit and nevertheless to stand against it shows a darkness of heart that God refuses to relent upon. But notice above even that. Jesus stands there, sees, hears the blasphemy, knows the evil that's in their heart. He knows the depth of it and the nature of it, and nevertheless, he gives a warning about it. Notice he doesn't say, Pharisees, I want you to know that you have now committed the unpardonable sin and you're done. You're done. He doesn't say that. He gives them a warning. He says, you need to know, you can speak like that about me, you can speak like that about the temple, you can speak like that about any of the other things, but don't, don't do it about the Spirit. He is warning them, severely warning them. And that's just such an incredibly merciful thing to do. Those who attack him are attacking the very Spirit by which he acts, they hate him with a venom that is so rich and thick that they are able to look at a kind and a good work and call it evil. And then he instinctively simply warns them about where that's leading them. With mercy and kindness, lest they should get sucked into it forever. This is to be the way of our response. We are to war with warnings. You remember that our weapons are not the weapons of the flesh, but of the Spirit. So we let people know of the fate that awaits them. Colossians 1, 28, Paul says this, To the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Part of telling the nations the good news is warning them about the bad news. You cannot ever get right with God based on the things that you do. You will never work your way out of that hole. You'll never work your way off of the gravity that is continually spiraling around you or that you are continually spiraling around. One day, as you lose energy, you will be sucked down into the inevitable death and destruction that awaits you. By your own power, you have no 
hope. But by the hand of Jesus Christ, who has already died your death, has already defeated death, has already put to bed your sins, if you cast your hope and your trust upon him, because he has died and he has risen from the grave, with the affirmation of the Lord our God upon him, you will be saved. So we always warn people. We think about their fate so that we might build up compassion and sympathy for them. One of the reasons why Jesus is so sympathetic is because he knows better than anyone the fate that awaits them. No one in Scripture ever speaks more about hell than Jesus does. And it's not because he relishes it, but because he seeks to encourage people out of it. So think about it. Take time to meditate upon hell, upon fire, upon never-ending destruction. Contemplate the truth of the fate of such a place. The people who speak flippantly of hell are the people who never think about it. Think about it. And let it drive your compassion for people. How will the war against Satan be waged and won? It will only be done by the power, the grace, the mercy, and the love of Jesus Christ for sinners. That is our power, yet it is not ours but Christ's in us. So then, in, in the love of Christ, we fight for the souls of those in this world. With our hearts rightly aligned, with our minds bent on the truth, with our witness clear and bold, let us warn the world of the blackness that awaits them and of the even more powerful love of a Savior who can save them from it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you might break the hearts of sinful people. Not just those outside, but certainly those outside but that we ourselves, even your children, might be humbled before you and through that humility and faith receive the goodness of your mercy. Heal us from our sin. Open our eyes. Save us from the death and destruction that certainly awaits us outside of Jesus Christ. In your justice, Father, remember mercy. We ask this for our good and for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.